But you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, who are one of the little clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to rule in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has brought forth. Then the rest of his kindred shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall live secure, for now... He shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be the one of peace. This is the word of the Lord. This year, while we deal with Hebrew scriptures, I want us always to be very fair with the authors of the text and understand what that author first meant to say. Then I think it's legitimate for us to ask, What does this say now to us Gentile Christians? Rabbi Gunter Plout reminds us that Micah was a contemporary of Isaiah. They lived at the same time. Micah came from a small town just southwest of Jerusalem called Moreshet. And this man from a very small town dared to take on the kings of his own time. We learn from his brief work that he lived during the reign of four different kings that he lived during the time when the northern tribes were absolutely decimated by the Assyrians. Uh, the Assyrians came, laid siege to the capital city of the ten northern tribes. Uh, when they ran out of food and water, had to surrender, uh, the Assyrians raped and plundered, devastated the people, burned their royal capital city, and moved all who survived north into Assyria and sent others down to live in their homes to cultivate their fields. Micah and Isaiah were both convinced that the same fate would befall Judah, the southern tribes, if they did not seriously reform. Rabbi Gunter Plout and others feel that when Micah speaks about a baby born, he means someone born in the palace in Jerusalem. He means, for him, he means a descendant of David who will replace this hated king Ahaz who's doing such a terrible job. That baby born was named Hezekiah. He was better, but not good enough. And in fact, 150 years later, the Babylonians would march on the south and devastate them, uh, kill all the king's sons, tear out the eyes of the king, and then force march him blinded all the way to Babylon. No Israelite, no Jew, no descendant of David would ever sit on the throne again. Herod the Great was not a descendant of David. He was an Edomean, not a Jew. He is writing into his situation, what can you and I glean from it that has meaning and purpose for us? I'm going to borrow a few verses from the chapter just before the verses I read to help put this in context for you. Number one, many nations are assembled against you. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the ruler of Israel upon the cheek. He shall give them up. And the understanding of Micah is that if really terrible people are able to defeat really good people, it's because for some reason God has thrown up his hands for a time. For a time. Months ago, I saw Nathan Lane on a couple of the talk shows. He was promoting a revival of an old play on Broadway called Waiting for Godot. 
He said some people say, Godo, you really should pronounce it Gado because that's what Samuel Beckett was writing about, about God. It's a play primarily two men. Uh, David Letterman asked Nathan Lane the night he was on his show, well, you're a comedian. You're known for musical comedy, theater. And he said, yes, you don't remember the first two men who played these roles, I'm sure. David wasn't sure who it was. And Nathan Lane said, well, it was first performed on Broadway in 1956, and Burt Lahr and E.G. Marshall had the roles. Wow, Burt Lahr, you mean the cowardly lion from The Wizard of Oz. Yeah, the cowardly lion from The Wizard of Oz. Seventeen years after that role, he was now an older man. He had been a comedian, a comedic actor, a character actor for years and years. Samuel Beckett wanted him to play that lead role. Because, in fact, it is a Laurel and Hardy burlesque, if you would, a farce of these two old men trading barbs back and forth with each other for more than two hours, all the time waiting for Godot. And finally, at the very end, the Burt Lahr character says, well, I'll be going now. And the other says, no, no, you can't go. We're still waiting for Godot. And the character says, And Beckett's message was, he's not coming. Do you understand? He's not coming. And Micah acknowledges there may be times when you think he isn't coming, but he is. Number two, this is what he adds. They do not know the thoughts of the I am who I am. They do not understand his plan that God will, in fact, come in his own due time. John Buchanan, I've told you, pastor of Fourth Presbyterian Church, Chicago, editor of the Christian Century magazine now, has written several times this year in his lead article in Christian Century about the death of John Updike. He's still grieving the loss of John Updike. He keeps saying, I, I just need another book from John Updike. But since there will be no more now since Updike's death, he's going back and reading some others. One of those was, uh, was about a character named Beck. I told you that I got to meet John Updike, Gail and I did, when he was here for the Peggy Helmerich Author of the Year dinner some years ago. And he was kind enough to walk over afterward and thank me for the prayer that evening. And so I asked him if he was a Methodist. He said he grew up one, married an Episcopalian, and found it easier to go to church with her, become Episcopalian. Well, in this book called Beck is Back... He describes the Episcopalians he knows and said they go to church about as often as they play tennis and golf and attend neighborhood meetings to keep developers as far from them as possible. But their God is an icy cirrus. I saw James ate a lot here a few minutes ago. An icy cirrus a high-flying cloud that keeps out more light than it lets in. Their God is an icy cirrus. Is that who your God is? Then maybe you haven't understood the plans of God. Let's go to number three. You, Bethlehem of Ephrathah, one of the little clans of Judah whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. Oh, yeah. Genesis 35 
Go all the way back to the very first book, and there you have this story about Jacob and all of his 12 sons. He fell in love with Rachel. On the wedding night, he was given her older sister, Leah. Leah had babies, little boys. Rachel was having no little boys, no children at all. She wanted to, so she gave her handmaid to Jacob to make babies for her, and he did. And Leah suddenly quit making babies and decided, well, she didn't want to get behind, so she offered her handmaid to Jacob, and they made more little boys. And then Leah had more little boys. Now there were ten of them. And finally, Rachel conceived and birthed a baby who would be named Joseph. And she conceived again and birthed a baby named Benjamin. Gave birth but died in the process and was buried in Ephrathah, Bethlehem. Bethlehem. Years later, a great famine in that part of the world, and a woman named Naomi and her husband, Ephrathites from Bethlehem, crossed the river Jordan into Moab. They had two marrying-age sons, so they married Moabite women. Then Naomi's husband died, both of her sons. One of the Moabite daughters-in-law went home to her people. The other said, I'm not leaving you. Where you go, I go. What you eat, I eat. Your God, my God, Ruth, would not go away. So Naomi took her home again to Ephrathah, Bethlehem. And Ruth would meet Boaz and in time be married to him. And they would have a child. And she would become the great-grandmother of David. It was to this little nowhere place that Samuel the prophet was sent by God to find the new king. Go to the house of a man named Jesse in Bethlehem, and there I will show you which one. So he looked at the oldest son of Jesse, and God was whispering in his heart, No, number two, no, three, four, five, six, no. Have you no more sons? I have a boy out in the back. He's looking after the sheep and goats. Call him in. And when David walked in, that's the one. Of of old. From of old, ancient times. And now, after the Babylonians had come, no descendant of David had been on the throne for 600 years. None. Dr. Fred Craddock has written about the first chapter of Matthew. Matthew begins with a long genealogy. He begins with his people, Abraham and Sarah. And goes from there 42 generations to Joseph of Nazareth to a baby about to be born. But here, Craddock, what he says in his commentary on that passage, it's easier to believe in a Messiah who's coming than to believe in one who has already come. Number four, when he comes... He will be the one of peace. Shalom, it says. Shalom, that's what Michael wrote. Not only absence of war, but well-being. Well-being. So many of our World War II generation are dying, and we're missing them greatly. Another, not from our church, but from the United States, Russell Schutpelz. 
had never talked about wartime experiences, his family said. And then one Christmas Eve, the grandchildren begged him, Please, Granddad, what was happening to you in the war? And he said, Let me tell you about Christmas Eve, 1944. I was in the Air Force. I was a part of a crew flying B-17s out of England across to Germany. Ten men made up the crew. I was the oldest on my crew, 23 years old. Pilot, co-pilot, bombardier, all younger than I was. I, well, he said, maybe you've never seen a picture of those old B-17s. There was a little turret down underneath, and I was the one down in that little turret. It could turn left and right and fire at enemy aircraft. The heavy bombs were dispatched from the back of the plane. And when I would crouch down in that tiny little moving turret underneath the body of the plane, I would be there for 10 hours as we flew all the way to Germany and hopefully back again. That Christmas Eve was tough. Six months before, we had landed at Normandy. Things seemed to be going well. And then came the Battle of the Bulge. We had heard stories. We had thousands of men surrounded at Bastogne in Belgium. We were losing great numbers every day. The weather was terrible. They needed the Air Force badly. Christmas Eve, they said, today we fly. And so the ten of us took off. We were flying lead in a V-shaped formation of B-17s as we crossed the channel the bomber just to my right. I was hanging down under the fuselage of the plane. I could see it shot down into the, into the, this, the channel. We got over land, and the bomber to our left shot down. I saw him in flames crashing into the field below. We made it all the way there and all the way back to England. Our pilot landed. It was well after dark. We got to the end of the runway, and he announced... The fog here is so thick, you cannot see the end of the wings. We've been told to shut off all lights, shut off the engines, so that we don't have planes running into each other as they try to land. He turned out the lights. It was really dark. I climbed out of the turret up into the main fuselage of the plane. It was still really dark. And then Boker, Boker, he was only 19. He was the bombardier. We called him Boker the Joker. He was always trying to keep everybody's morale up. And suddenly he struck a match and started singing, Oh, come all ye faithful. And the man next to him struck a match and joined in the singing, and then the third and the fourth, and soon there were ten little matches burning. And we moved into silent night, holy night, and before we could get to sleep in heavenly peace all the matches had gone out and it was really dark and really quiet but he came he came 